Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to the Stolen Goodbyes podcast with me, Karen Rice. This is a unique space that gives a voice to people who lost loved ones to the COVID-19 pandemic. Loss to COVID-19 is a grief like no other. No warning, no goodbye, no funeral, grief and isolation. They were robbed not just of the person, but of everything that goes with the death. The bereaved still question, how did this virus come into our lives? Because there is no goodbye, their death doesn't seem real. They still expect them to walk through the door, that they're watching a film of somebody else's life. This podcast is also a space to remember and celebrate just how amazing, funny and special these ordinary yet extraordinary people were. I'm joined today by people who lost their loved ones to COVID-19 in the first wave of the pandemic in 2020. Loss to COVID-19 is a grief like no other. It has affected almost 6 million people around the world, and that grief has yet to be unpacked and understood. Historically, trauma was associated with violent experiences such as sexual assault, war, car accidents and child abuse. But we now know that people who lost loved ones to COVID-19 have been really traumatised by that experience and the manner of that experience. Manny suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Can I turn to you, Jane? Can you speak, share how you suffered in that way? I was lucky enough that the hospital did say I could go in and say goodbye to Carl. And at the time, I the door of the room he was in was just opened and I heard this horrendous noise, this noise of somebody gasping for breath, this noise of somebody's chest rattling. And I couldn't believe it, but it was my golf lying completely alone in a room gasping for breath and the noise was absolutely horrendous and I was only allowed to stay 10 minutes and I had to walk out and leave him knowing that I wouldn't be there when he took his last breath when he fought for his last breath and that noise haunted me day and night unremittingly And I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, for which I have had some counselling. But because I couldn't afford to go privately, it just has to be on the NHS. And of course, that's time limited. So I have been left to fight the demons by myself. How have you coped? I haven't really, if I'm honest. I pretend to cope, but there are times when things get very, very tough, very tough. And 
just feel completely forgotten and marooned by everybody. Your day to day, I mean, um, yes, uh, you know, just the practical things, just trying to cope financially, trying to to rewrite my life somehow. Um, life is very, very, very tough, and I just feel so alone. I have to say that I have not seen a GP since long before Goff died. And you just feel that you've just been written off. And he did so much, so much for other people as a community first responder. And you just get nothing in back. It has been said that um, people who've suffered trauma have a feeling of uh, impending sort of doom or disaster or oh, the whole is, is that something that you can relate to the whole time every single millisecond of every single day and every single night I am absolutely petrified of what's going to happen next completely and absolutely and nothing stops it and that's down to the um, yeah. manner, the the quickness and the manner in which you lost off and then everything that followed from that. Yes, yes, absolutely. My rock stay is gone, um, like the poor queen. Yes, just, I don't really know what's going on anymore. Yeah. And there's no support? Nothing, no. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Jane. Um, Thank you. Carol, dealing with trauma. Um, well, for the first year, well, the first six months, I had screaming fits at home. Um, I didn't want to be here. Um, the last time I, I, well, I never saw my mum, as you know, but the last time I heard her, um, she, we, we phoned her up and she was gasping for breath and trying desperately to and she she told me she was scared and where was I and I, I was like mom they're not letting me in at the moment you know I was devastated at the sort of denial of everything and then I, could, I couldn't accept it and I didn't want to be here and there were a couple of times where I had really really serious black thoughts and I told my husband, and he said, you need to see a GP. I didn't see a GP that was on the phone. And they diagnosed me with, um, they said it was COVID PTSD. Um, what's that? And I was going well, to ask, how is that different? Does anybody actually know? I've got no idea. They just said that there is post-traumatic stress disorder, which is related to, um, like you said earlier, the sexual assaults, um, a, a severe trauma of some sort but this was a totally different kind of trauma because it was a, it was a, it was a, a bereavement, but one not seen before. Um, and I had somebody from a, a support group who, and within two sessions, she said to me, I can't help you. I've never had to deal with this before and I can't help you. And she just dropped me 
and then fortunately I was really really fortunate that um, I had a, somebody that offered through cruise to offer me some counseling and I was literally at the end of my my tether I was on the point of I'm really not going to be here anymore writing letters to my kids and that's an awful thing to say and then I met these guys through the cruise meeting it was the very first time they'd ever done a crew a zoom meeting on a face-to-face but through zoom and Jane was one of them and she's like we're, we're sort of there's the seven of us who have stayed in touch for the last two years and we are like sisters now don't we Jane it's, it's amazing and they have really been an, a massive saving grace for me but there's no support elsewhere absolutely nothing just stick a few of these tablets down your throat it'll all get better soon and it's it doesn't work that way I was on the point of wanting to actually do something where I didn't want to I was going to end my life and when I think back at now how I was in that state I'm actually cross with myself because I've got kids and I've got grandchildren why would I want to do that but the trauma was so severe for me because the manner in which she passed away the manner in which she was given COVID, the manner in which she had no dignified end. I, I didn't know how to deal with that. It wasn't like a normal bereavement. And, and it's, it stays with you, unfortunately, and it is a trauma, no oh, matter how built. And of course you had no control over any of it. Do you think people realise the sort of trauma, the, the trauma that people are suffering on account of the fact that there was no goodbye in the manner of the passing of their loved ones? No, not at all. I think people just think it was, they were, oh, well, people die. People who are old die. People with underlying conditions die. Oh, well, you know, mm-hmm. it's a shame. I think they, they just don't see, they don't see the stiff stuff that we didn't get to do. The, the, the human traditions that uh, helps us grieve the the managing things that we do you know when we have a week we speak to friends and family we hear stories about them and happy times and we didn't get any of that we were just left with the absolute devastation of the way they died and and the lead up to that we we just left with that and then obviously on top of that layer of pain is the complete disregard for the rules uh from the people in charge yeah yeah, and, and grieving through a pandemic um, is completely different and um, sort of trying to process all of that when you can't go anywhere or do anything to distract you from it. The, the 24 hour, seven day a week bombardment of COVID, whether that's social media, TV, radio, friends, family, the topic of conversation it's not even conversation you walk in a shop there's posters about covid you go to the cinema you've got to think about co we haven't had you know people kind of go through stages of grief and then you kind of don't have to think about it all the time covid what killed our family members is constant it's constant there is no let up and we haven't had any let up for two years and now they want us to celebrate that it's over it's just it's, it's so, so difficult. A constant trigger. Mm. Mm-hmm. Thank you, uh, Lindsay. Eileen, uh, how have you suffered mentally um, the last? Um, well, I have suffered mentally because I've had the added pressure of um, looking after my father. 
Um, and it's just sometimes been beyond possible. Um, but we've not been able to grieve properly because we don't want to discuss a lot of things with him about my mum because we're married for so long. And it's just unbearably sad, unbearably sad. And I can't bear to see my dad upset. So we've not properly been able to grieve or talk about my mum or talk to our friends or our family. It's it's, it's just been awful. And, it, yeah, it's definitely affected me. Um, I just feel a lot more anxious all the time, a lot anxious and um, worried just sort of feeling of impending doom. You're not sure what's going to happen next. You know, some, it has to be something awful. Um, I can't ever be cheery and happy the way I used to be. It's just like I've been run over by a truck and I've just never been able to get back up again properly. Thank you, Eileen. Do you, do you have that sense of impending doom, uh, Lindsay? You affected in that way? Um, I don't think so because I'm... Again, just with a young child, I want to try and be as positive as I can for him. And we need to try and we are trying to give our children a, as good a life as we can in in, a re, in difficult circumstances. Um, I think it's more of um, you, you just never know what's going to happen next with it. It's that it's that sense of not knowing all of the time you know are we going like over Christmas now it's kind of we're having text messages from the school saying please prepare for the possibility of remote learning and then we are thinking right are we homeschooling again are we not homeschooling again it's just the 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 not knowing of what's next what what hurdle are we going to have to to go over next I think that's just it's you know and it's, it's looking to the, be trying to be positive and look for the future and think well if we book to do this or book to do that are we going to all be disappointed again because we've got to cancel it you know so it's, we, we we try not to book many things for the children because if we have to we just feel like we're always going to let them down because we, we book things and then something you can't travel anymore or you know you can't sort of go further than a mile from it is it going to go back to that again when is it going to be a new variant is it you know I, I it's just the unknowing all of the time the uncertainty of it all okay thank you is there anything else that you would both like to say about any of that um any final thoughts i think on eileen sorry no no i just think i i could probably go on about everything all day and you know i say one thing and then it reminds me of something else and it's um, something that's dominated my, my thoughts, my conversations for the last two years. And I find myself talking about it to anybody that will listen, basically anyone that will listen. And I suppose in a way that's a sort of a, the only therapy that I, I could get just by talking to people. But you do think people must be fed up with me by now talking about this constantly. But yeah, it just dominates my thoughts a lot of the time. Is there any support? Um, no, I don't really. Well, I have my, my family, my partner and uh, my both my daughters. But, you know, you don't want to burden yourself on people. My daughters are, are young, so I don't really want to burden them. And they suffered as well because they. my oldest daughter was in Birmingham and she had to watch my mum's funeral live stream. And my youngest daughter, who doesn't live with me, had to sit three rows behind me on her own. Uh, at my mum's funeral so we're all suffering in in different ways 
you know, they've lost their gran, I lost my mum, my dad lost his wife. But we've never all been together to be able to say how we all individually feel. We've just had to sort of assume how people are coping. Um, so it's just been really, really difficult. And it's, I think it's changed people's outlook on on life, on, on the NHS, uh, on well, politicians. I've never really held them in much regard. Um, so, yeah, it's changed my outlook on life quite a bit, quite a bit. Lindsay? Yeah, I, I think for me, it's just, it's, it's opened my eyes to how some people can be so disrespectful. Um, mm. Just the conversations you see on socials, you see them on the TV, on chat shows, in magazines and papers about people who don't believe that it's really happened or downplaying the deaths of people because they had underlying health conditions or they were over a certain age. It, I can't believe that there are human beings out there who would openly say to you, oh, well, they were mm-hmm. old, get mm-hmm. over it, mm-hmm. or it didn't really exist. Or, you, you know, it almost making you feel stupid because you did believe it. Even though you first hand, you know, the, I, I've I've fallen out with family members who were, knew my father, claimed to to care for us, care for him, care about him, who were still saying that it doesn't really exist, and and it and I'm, I'm sometimes I'm left absolutely speechless at, like I have an opinion by all means, but just have some empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, don't share those negative opinions if you know it's going to hurt someone or cause them upset. It's the, I've never known that before. And I just kind of, it's opened my eyes to a whole other level of negativity and um, just people being awful, just mm-hmm. awful. That That's what this has done. And I kind of just wish it would stop. Have an opinion by all means, but don't feel that everybody wants to hear it. Yes. Um, thank you. Um, is there anything else that you want to say or is that is that okay? Um, yeah, I just think it's been pretty catastrophic. Um, everything about it's been catastrophic and I would like an inquiry. I would like an inquiry into why it's ended up this way, but a proper inquiry, not not a you know, a whitewash or a sweeping under the carpet. Debbie, how have you coped? I wasn't there. I couldn't go up there. I couldn't hug her. I couldn't put my arms around her. I couldn't tell her this was going to be okay because we knew it wasn't okay and there was nothing that we could do to fix it. And going on about people that accessed help through the support groups I've run I've had so many people say to me we've tried to access help there's a waiting list we've been told it may be a few weeks or a few months and through the groups that I've run what we've actually done we've split down into regional groups and it's the breed talking to each other such as Carol and Jane have said and we are finding that Yet more failures within the government, the lack of mental health support, the lack of trained counsellors. Sally, I mean, 
everybody's loss tremendously painful but yours coming uh four months after your wedding um particularly so um how have you coped in terms of your loss your mental health trauma in in the time since trevor's passing for the first for the first six months i i wasn't really in myself i wasn't really around um there wasn't any support like i said and like everyone else has said there was nothing out there but i knew um i had my friends and family thankfully i had a good few friends and my family was always on the end of the phone for me because that's the only place they could be because they couldn't be with me um there was many a times that I did try to take my own life because I couldn't bear with it. I couldn't deal with it. But it, obviously, you know, I stopped. And what I found to get me through it in the early days was making my grief videos, which I have posted on my um, my grief support page that I've set up. And I've numbered them. I think I'm up to number 10 or 11. Um, and every time I got to the, my darkest time I'd do a grief video showing the world what it's like to lose someone to COVID and how you are coping afterwards so they can see the truth rather than you know a painted on smile and whatever this is me crying my eyes out um, explaining what it's done to me what it's done to him and, and all of the different processes that I was going through. That's my initial um, support I did for myself to get me through it. Um, my work wasn't doing anything for me at the time either. Um, so I then looked for um, free counselling and I found free counselling. And I had, I think, eight sessions. It worked to start with. It did work. Um, but then once the sessions come to an end, that's it, you're left. Um, so I was okay for a little while. Um, but then when my first wedding anniversary came up, which is also at Christmas, my first wedding anniversary is also on my late brother's birthday. So, you know, it was just a double whammy of grief, really. A, a day that should have been a bit of joy rather than just full of grief. But instead of being upset continuously and mourning for him I tried to enjoy my anniversary on my own with our glasses that we bought on honeymoon especially for our first wedding anniversary so I used the champagne that we got from the wedding poured it into both glasses and put my tiara on and did my hair and makeup and did it as if he was still around me because I felt I had to do something because I couldn't give him a wake. I couldn't give him any of that. And I still wanted to celebrate my wedding. I hadn't been married a year, <laughs> never been a wife before. Um, so I did that. I felt good at the time. The next day I wasn't very good. The next day, obviously, it's my tsunami came because that's what it's like when the grief hits you. Um, and then for the following year, I then decided that I couldn't stay in my house where I was. So I moved, I relocated. I've moved about an hour and a half away from all of my family and friends. 
I thought it wouldn't make any difference because I couldn't see anyone anyway. So I might as well take the benefit and move, do the relocation that my husband and I had already talked about doing. So to me, I was doing something else for him. So it gave me something to focus on. So I focused on moving. How has that gone for you? Um, it, the move has gone quite smoothly, really. Um, it was hard because I had to pack all of these things away, which I hadn't touched. And um, and I had to pack all of my pictures and everything away. And I've moved in and I've unpacked his clothes and I've put them away. And he's got his own wardrobe now, which he never had before. Um, and all of his clothes are in the chest of drawers and, you know, I wear pictures I now he's got a dedicated room upstairs now to him. Um, it's just my spare and it was spare room, but it's just dedicated to his things. But it was hard. It was hard packing his things up. But it was nice when I moved in. <laughs> I remember the first thing I did was I picked up his urn of ashes and I carried him through the front door. And I said, there you go, darling, carrying you over the threshold. <laughs> it should have been the other way around, but there you go. Um, I just tried to make a little bit of light of it, even though it felt like I was dying inside. Um, and then living here, I love it here. I've nearly been here a year now. Um, it is lovely. I've made some new friends. I've, I've tried to make a new life for myself, but I know I'm not me. I'm not that happy person. I don't know if I can ever be that happy person, but... I need to be, I need to do something to make me happy. So I'm trying everything that I can. Um, and I, when I made the group for the support for the, the widows that I was trying to find other people suffering like me, um, I met a group like, like Carol and Jane. I met a group of four other women, all different, you know, all were over the place. And we've been friends ever since. So there's the five of us. Um, and we've stayed in touch for them two years as well. And we sort of help each other through it all. And and that's what it's all about is, you know, just helping everybody together because we're all suffering the same pain. And only us know what the pain is until it's touched you and you've lost someone in that way. You just can't comprehend it. And I think where people haven't lost anybody and don't know anybody that's lost someone, it's very hard for them to even understand and they just think you should be over it by now. I'm never going to be over it and Trevor's never going to be out of my heart or my head or anything because I think of him every day and I talk to him all the time. Um, but I know I have to move on. I'm still in my 40s. I can't, you know, I don't want to be a dried up old prune sitting here on a shelf. <laughs> and he wouldn't want me to be either. You two worked together, you and Trevor. You yeah. also felt that you couldn't go back to that place of work, is that right? Yeah, we, we met at work. Um, we both started at the, the same dealership um, a month apart. So we met in 2018. We were best friends from the first day he walked into the room. And um, by the January 2019, we went out for a drink and he kissed me and that was it. We got married in that December and then I lost him in the April. Um, so the work has a really big attachment because we was always at work together. 
we always spoke to each other during the day and went to lunch together, drove there and everything. And being away from it, I, I, I tried, I've tried to go in a couple of times for meetings, but every time I've gone in, it's broke me every time. Because one, I knew I was happy with him and he was there. I knew where he'd sit and now he's not sitting there. And I know that he's not at home. It's just too much. I can't, I can't deal with it. It's, it's bad enough coping with the fact that I'm not going to see him again and that he's not living around me, like with me physically anymore. But to go to somewhere that was the other part of that and he's not there either, it's like a double, double sword, really. I can't face being put back into the black hole that I'm just trying to crawl out of, really. Thank you, Sally. What you've all been through is so incredibly cruel, so cruel and unfair. And then there's this extra layer of uh, unjustness and unfairness uh, running on top of that, on top of those feelings. And that's, you know, the mismanagement of the pandemic and the behavior of Boris Johnson and his government. Do you have something to say about that level of cruelty and unjustness? I don't think there is any words to describe. No. There's not enough words to describe it. It's I, I can't think of anything to say because it's just so despicable and unforgettable. How, how important is it that you are all shining a light on the facts of your loss and the facts of uh, what you've gone through following that loss in lockdown and then also the fact that those rules that apply to you that denied you so much were flouted yeah. at the top of government. How important is it that, the, that, this, that there's a light being shone on this by the, by the podcast? I think it's incredibly important because I don't think people, as we've said so many times, who haven't experienced the absolute hell that we've all been through, knows what we've been through. And the fact that the government people just didn't think the rules applied to them. They they just thought that they were above the law and we all stuck with the law to our own detriment and to our the, the destruction of our own mental health. And they just didn't think it applied to them. They, they, they were above the law. And that just makes it so cruel. Thank you. Any other comments on that? Um, yeah, from what I can remember, when we was in lockdown, people were getting fined for having too many people in their houses. And people were getting even threatened with being locked up and everything else. Now, them people that struggled with all of that, for whatever reason, because my neighbours were trying to get me to go around, and I was like, I can't. So I had to stay in my garden, and they stayed in theirs. So because we was abiding by that, we didn't get arrested or anything. But general people were getting that treatment. So if they got that treatment, they got fined and reprimanded or whatever, why is it not happening to them? 
the people that made the rules, the people that are in charge of trying to safeguard our safety that they didn't do. You know, you might as well just shoved us all on the Titanic because that's what it feels like. We didn't have enough lifeboats and we was in the third class. So, and they're in the first class. Thank you. And, all right. Sorry, no, do you want to say something else, Sally? All right. No, it's fine. Yeah, thanks, thank you. Uh, Debbie? Yeah, to me, the fact that they're talking about fining these individuals, to me, is laughable. We are talking about some extremely wealthy people. A fine is going to be nothing to them. It's going to be loose change. It's going to be something they find on the back of their sofas. They should lose their jobs. Every single one of them, including the Prime Minister. Thanks so much for listening to these stories. They really matter to me and to the people telling them. Please tell your friends and family about this important corner of the internet and take a few moments to rate, review and subscribe to the Stolen Goodbyes podcast. Every listen counts. Thank mm-hmm. you.